Thank you, Taylor and Zach and Abby. Yeah. What a great addition to our little group. And I, I, uh, I'll make this on behalf of Taylor. If you guys, if you have a gift when it comes to singing music that you want to get involved with, talk to Taylor because um, we're we're growing in every way, including our, our music. Um, so let me so. Okay, let's step back. We were looking at Ephesians, and we've stepped away from Ephesians to consider the sacraments. There are two, Lord's Supper and baptism. We looked at baptism last week. This week, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. And really, if you combine our our look at Ephesians, the sacraments, and even our look at the gospel uh, back in the fall, in the church. We met three times in the fall. All of this together is membership training. And so, you know, if you so choose, you're poised and ready to, to join King's Cross. Now, the particulars of the, the remaining, you know, steps, I'll, I'll explain that uh, when I figure out how all those details work. Some of it depends upon city prayer. Anyway, there, there's more to it. But basically, you're on the road to membership. If you, if you so choose. Um, and we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper today. Let me say this too. So the Presbyterian Church may be very familiar to many of you, maybe not familiar to others. Let me say one thing that makes uh, the Reformed uh, tradition, Presbyterian, and lots of other what they call confessional uh, churches, is that they adhere to a body of doctrine um, and for, 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 for us, it's the Westminster Standards. Now, I grew up in a denomination that was, you know, no creed but the Bible. Um, but, you know, in truth, that approach, actually, there, there is a creed that kind of develops around that no creed but the Bible. Um, in fact, you could think of it like this. Because for the non-creedal folks, no creed but the Bible, the thinking is, well, that's so stifling to have this creed. Um, but it's actually not. Some, some very creative and important and unique contributions to theology have come from confessional creedal Christians. L- let me illustrate it like this. I was talking to a pastor in our d- denomination a few weeks ago, and he was talking about going up this mountain in Oregon. And he said, on the the they were making their way up this mountain. It was a pretty, really steep mountain. And there were areas where there was no guardrails, just a path. He said as they were doing, walking along that, everybody was like kind of nervously clinging to the wall, rightfully so. And then on the areas of the climb where there was railing, you know, people were leaning over. There was all sorts of freedom on the trail where the railing was. Okay. You could think of the, the, the Westminster Standards as like the railing, and they actually provide a lot of freedom for us to roam within the, the, the structure. So I'm, I'm going to get to that in a second. But before we take up um, the sacraments, again, I want us to consider Genesis chapter 3, the fall, and then we'll, we'll fast forward. Always, But if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3. This is probably really familiar. Okay, so Adam and Eve, at the suggestion of the serpent, eat the fruit that they were not supposed to eat. Okay? From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and here's the promise, verse 5, what well, the serpent says, um, your eyes will be opened. And he was right on that part, right? Because look at verse 7. Then they, they, they took the fruit, this is actually verse 6, they ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her, he ate, and in verse 7, the eyes of both were opened. And all of a sudden, they became, became aware of a, of a new world. A brave new world, a world filled with sin, a world marked by alienation to God and to their neighbor, to one another, um, a world marked by guilt 
by shame, all of that, when their eyes were opened, they felt that in the core of their being. Okay, so let's fast forward to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, this is uh, the last chapter of Luke, and this is following the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, The road to Emmaus. And let, let me just set this up. Jesus, okay, the disciples are at a low point because they have given three years of their lives and their hopes and dreams to the promises of this Messiah, Jesus. And he died. And they've not seen the resurrected Lord. And so they are depressed, disappointed. All of those dreams have been broken. And now that he's been dead for three days, there's, like, there's not any hope in them coming back. And yet G- Jesus shows up to them on the road to Emmaus. But they don't recognize him. Okay, look, look at verse, uh, ver- verse 44. So they don't recognize him yet. Uh, then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understanding the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should... Uh, oh wait, no, I, I, I'm sorry. I totally messed up on that. Um, Maybe I didn't. Where am I? I'm lost. I'm totally lost in this. Um, Luke 24. The bread breaking part, yes. Verse 30. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, listen to this. (laughs) Thank you, Stephanie. (laughs) So grateful. (laughs) Okay. this is how teaching is different than a sermon. You don't do this in a sermon, hopefully. I teach is a little more laid back, so hopefully you guys can bear with me in that. Okay, so they, they drew to the village. He acted as if they were going further, but they urged him strongly. This is verse 29. Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in with them. He was at the table with them. Okay, and let me say something else. Remember, Adam and Eve, they have a meal. Right? They eat the fruit. And the meal opens their eyes to death, sin, alienation with one another and God, their guilt, their shame. Okay, so here they are. They're having this meal. Now, fast forward. The disciples are having this meal with Jesus, who they don't realize is Jesus. And he takes bread, and he blesses it. He breaks it, and he gives it to them. And in verse 31, look, another meal. Another eyes. Look, their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And then he vanishes from their sight. So, the forbidden fruit opened the eyes of humanity to guilt, shame, sin, alienation with God, alienation to to neighbor. This meal right here, the breaking of the bread with the disciples, opened the disciples' eyes to the resurrected Lord. And we might also say, open their eyes to the promises, the promises of God, not guilt, shame, but freedom, forgiveness, healing, fellowship with God, fellowship with neighbor, all of those things. And so that, in a nutshell, is what the sacraments are all about, opening our eyes helping us to see what what is really right before us, right? Jesus was in front of them for like an extended period of time. He taught them before they even realized it was him. Right before their eyes. And then the breaking of the bread and their eyes are opened. That's what the sacraments do. They open our eyes to what is really right before us. And that is the work of God in Christ, in our midst, in our lives. So, um, but let's consider what the catechism says, and I think we have it, if we could um, move forward. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27, section 1. What are sacraments? It says, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace 
immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. Okay, so they're uh, signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Um, We talked about this last week. A sign. What's a sign? A sign is something that points to something else. Um, you, I, I mentioned last week this little ring here. This is a wedding ring, and it is a sign that points to the fact that Sarah and I are married. Okay? Now, if I take this thing off and put it on my daughter, does that mean she's, like, married and I'm all of a sudden not married? No, it's not the thing itself. It's a sign that points to the thing. I mean, that's the nature of a sign. It's not the thing. It points to the thing. Okay, and so um, that's what the Lord's Supper is. That's what baptism is. They're signs. And that's, what, that's what's communicated there um, to represent, right, to signify Jesus and his benefits. Okay, so they're signs and they represent Christ and his benefits. There are also seals. Um, I can remember my first baseball glove was a little McGregor. And it had on it this little, I remember it very well, it had um, a little seal on it that said genuine leather. And that was McGregor's statement that this thing was legit. And it was real cowhide, this glove. Um, you, you may have, if you went to college, maybe you have a uh, um, diploma. And on that diploma, there is a seal from the university that is a unique university exclusive seal that, that um, validates the degree, um, that, that you really did the work. And that's what, these, um, that's what the sacraments do. They, they are that kind of seal of approval um, that you really are gods. And they're gods like mark on you to validate you as his. Look, uh, and to confirm, that's the seal language, confirm, uh, seals solidify the truthfulness of something. To solidify our interest in Jesus. And also, to put a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world. Okay, so um, when you receive baptism... And when you receive the Lord's table, you're saying, I am, my citizenship is with the church. And I am going to be, I'm marked as a Christian in this world. Like in the early church, when they were, when they were baptized, like first, second century Christians, when they were baptized, um, strong possibility. I mean, they, they had a death warrant on their head when those waters hit them because Rome and, and different provinces wanted to stamp out Christianity for various reasons. And baptism marked them as a, as a believer, as a Christian. So it's identification with God and with, it, with Christ and with His people, the church. Okay. Oh my goodness. I'm having trouble. To, this is why I need to get my notes out. First thing I do needs to be get my notes out. So I'm not like totally lost. Um, yeah, and look, it's, it's there in my notes where the passage was, what the verse 30. Okay. L- let me say this too. Um, you know, worked in education for a number of years, and educators talk about how if you want to really teach a student something, um, you, you engage as many senses as you can. So like if you're learning the letter A, um, you need to, to not just look at it and see it, but if you can draw it out and sound it out with your lips. And if you can uh, not just see it, but hear the sound that it makes. And all of those things, maybe even drawing it like kindergartner, drawing it in, a, in sand or in shaving cream to help yourself remember it. Right? You're engaging the senses and it solidifies and reinforces the material. Right? Um, and that is what the, God in His sovereign wisdom has placed these sacraments as, as, a, sens, as a sensory, a sensual, I mean, involving the senses in what God is doing. And in this sense, we might say that they are, the sacraments are an outward, visible sign of an inward, invisible reality inside of us. Our faith, the thing that's going on inside of us that we can't see. 
That's what they are. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to land there for a, a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And... going to begin at verse 17. And I should say this before we read. The church at Corinth had some serious problems. Um, one of the problems, and I won't go into all of them, but one of the, the major issues was divisions within the Corinthian church. The, the Corinth itself was a city that prized itself on accomplishment. Um, and the people at Corinth as a part of that city, also prized themselves on accomplishment. And so there was a hierarchy in the church itself based on who was like, you know, super successful, impressive. So there's these divisions. Okay, so that's the backdrop. And Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17, the Lord's Supper. He says, but in, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, verse 21, for in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Paul says. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? It's like, when you guys come together for the Lord's Supper, it's like you're, uh, you're at the buffet line of the Sizzler. And that's not, you, you don't, that's not how you do this. The people, look at, uh, do you, you have places where you can go where you can feast together. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, and then verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll stop right there for now. Okay, those words are probably familiar. Um, they're the words of institution, uh, of, of, of making the, the meal happen. And what uh, he's, he's citing there is what has already been quoted in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, their Gospels. And Jesus says at that meal, um, he says that this is my body and this is my blood, referring to the wine and the bread. What does he mean? There's, a, there's been a lot of discussion on that. What exactly does that mean? I'm going to give you a few views. So the Catholic Church would say that the, the actual um, bread and wine become the actual literal body and blood of Jesus. Okay? It's called transubstantiation. Um, you know, you hear the sub is the substance. That the, the substance of the bread and the wine, the actual heart of them, are transformed into the body and blood of Jesus. That's the Catholic view. Martin Luther came along, Protestant reformer, 15, uh, 16th century, and he says, no, it's not that. He develops a view called consubstantiation, which is the belief that the element, or that Jesus, the real Jesus, his body and blood are with, in, and around the bread and the wine. It's sort of like, you know, if you have like a hot iron 
and you can feel the heat that's radiating off of it. Um, Jesus is like radiating off of the bread and the wine, but he's not in it. So, I mean, it seems like a small difference. I mean, there were wars like fought over this <laughs> distinction. Um, so it's a big, big, big deal. Um, now, there's another view, the Zwinglian view. Ulrich Zwingli comes along, and he says, uh, no, Jesus is saying, Jesus is there telling them, right? Um, this is my body, this is my blood. He, it's, 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 it's simply a memorial. It's simply a reminder. And there's nothing in the bread, in the wine, around the bread, around the wine. Simply a memorial service, a remembrance. And, and that's it. Uh, so those are three major views. Now, the Reformed view, so like our, our view, the Presbyterian view, is that it's sort of in the middle of all those views. Um, it's that Jesus, it's not just a memorial, um, but that Jesus uh, is spiritually present at the table by the Spirit. Okay, and it's it's mysterious. Can't even go into explaining it because it's just um, there's there's mystery involved in that. And one of the reasons that the reformers rejected transubstantiation, um, the belief that the elements actually become the body and blood of Jesus, is because uh, you know what does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Right? And if the body and the bread and wine are really Jesus, like you're putting Jesus through death every time, every week in churches all across the world. He's going through that again. But he's not. He's not. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and his work on the cross is done. So he's not in the elements any longer. Um, in fact, listen, listen to what... Um, one of, these, one of our confessions says about the, the transubstantiation. It says, transubstantiation is repugnant, not to Scripture alone. And remember this uh, 17th century document. But even common sense and reason. And it is the cause of manifold superstitions and gross idolatries. Right? And we're also all dumber for having sat through your answer. It's sort of like, boom. I mean, they meant not mention any words in that response. But, so, but unlike the memorial view, right, the Zwinglian view, Jesus is still present. In fact, um, the belief is that we somehow, mysteriously, are like lifted up. Um, to the heavens, to the right hand of the Father, to, to, uh, to commune with Him during this meal. It looks, it, it's a meal that looks backwards to His death. Like Paul says that in verse 26. At, every time you do it, eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. So it's looking backwards, uh, looking backwards to His death, but it's also looking forward to... Uh, the great banquet, the wedding feast, where Christ is united to his church, the bride. So looking backwards, it's looking forward. And we are really, when we take the bread and the wine, we are feeding upon Jesus and finding nourishment in him. Um, seriously. So here, here's, let me make it this point. Okay, I said these sacraments are outward, visible signs of an inward, invisible reality. Okay, Zwingli would say the same right here. He'd say, yeah, that's right. It's a sign of something that's on the inside. Um, I, but, but here's the difference. When the Spirit moves, this connects to this in a mysterious sanctifying, like makes us more like Jesus sort of way. That this outward sign, it's not, by the way, it's not because of the bread. It's not because of anything special in the wine. It's not because of anything special in me or the person that's administrating it. It's the Spirit. 
It's the spirit that makes this thing that sort of activates this meal so that it has a, a sanctifying effect upon us. Like we are actually spiritually nourished upon Jesus when we take the bread and the wine. So, here, here's what makes this, um, both of these sacraments difficult to, to teach on. Because I said it last week. The meaning of these sacraments is manifold. It's like a diamond, right? You can kind of look at it from all these different angles, and it, you see different facets of it, and you see different intricacies of it. And these symbols are meant to um, teach a whole host of things through them. Okay, I mean, let's just think about it. Let, let's just think of, let's think about one aspect. So we got two sacraments. Let's think about one aspect of one sacrament, the Lord's Supper, the bread. What do you know about bread? Anyway, just throw out things. What do you know about bread? It molds, okay. It molds. Um, it has yeast, okay. It. Um, what do you do with it? It's tasty, okay. So we eat bread before it molds, but after the yeast gets activated. So there's a little window of time where it's appropriate to eat that bread. Um, does bread grow on trees? No, it's actually a fruit of, of what? Of human labor. Right? People actually have to like make bread. It's not just like growing out on trees or growing up from the ground. Um, well, that's interesting. Um, I wonder, you know, also, by the way, the wine is the same. Wine isn't like flowing. You have to harvest grapes and you have to put it through a pretty uh, you know, involved process to get the wine. Um, you know, and so it is with Jesus, right? He came from heaven, but he, he lived. He, like, was in human culture and developed and was taught and had to work. And, he, and, and the world, you know, the culture performed a work on him, right? He developed in, in time. Um. What about, uh, so we said we, it's tasty, we eat it. What happens if we don't eat bread or food? You die pretty quick. So it's something we need very profoundly. Now, how does bread work? Like when we actually eat bread, uh, what do we do? What's the first thing you do with a big loaf of bread, right? Because you cook it. You don't cook little morsels of bread. You cook a loaf. And what do you do with the loaf? You tear it, okay? Um, you, uh, you, you not only do you tear it, but then what do you do with your mouth when you put it in your mouth? You, you bite it off, and then what happens? You start chewing it. And what are you doing when you chew that bread? You're eating it. You're, you're, you're breaking it down, right? It's just being broken down and broken down and broken down. And then as it, swell, as it makes its way down into our stomach, our body like, takes it and continues to break it down and break it down. And as the bread breaks down, what happens to you? What's that? Just, you got it. Okay. Okay. You get stronger. You get built up. As it breaks down, you're built up. Um, that's, I mean, you see the, 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 the correspondence to Christ, right? He was wounded for us. He was, he was ripped apart so that we might be put back together. He received the judgment of God so that we could receive His, his mercy. Uh, you know, he stood, he, he stood condemned and God forsaken so that we might be called righteous and received as God's children. Um, all of that is, is just in the bread. And that's just a quick little reflection on the significance, the sign of the bread and what it, what it means, what it entails. So, for that reason, uh, at King's Cross, our, our, we, will, we will do this meal on a weekly basis 
because of the rich symbolism and because it, because it, it actually has the sanctifying effect. It can, the signs actually connect to the in, inward invisible reality by the Spirit. So why would we not want to take advantage of that? So we're going we're gonna to do the meal weekly. Um, but what else can you expect at King's Cross? I want to mention a few things. Um, there will be a sermon preached every week. Um, and this will be a response. The Lord's table, the Lord's supper, taking it will be a response. Um, a response to that. It will follow the sermon. There'll be some comment, there will be some comments made on it. Um, on the, 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 the meal and its significance to try to explore the diamond, right? Explore the rich significance of what's taking place. You will hear the words of institution that we just read in Corinthians, right? Our Lord, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my, and so on and so on. There will be the words of institution. There will be a call and response, like an invitation that we'll say together. Um, there will be a prayer, and you'll notice every time I pray or, or a minister who's administering it prays, there will be the, the, the um, we will ask for the Spirit of God to come and to make this meal effective, to do this, connect the two. Okay, so... I want us to um, now step back. That's, we're going to take some questions in a little bit. But before we do, I want to review both Lord's Supper and baptism. Um, we've got these two signs, and they have Old Testament corollaries, right? Baptism, as we talked about last week, is connected to the Old Testament circumcision, Okay? The Lord's Supper is connected to the Passover. Now notice, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, these two signs do not involve the shedding of blood. Right? The Passover meal did. The, the lamb. But why is there no lamb? Well, because the lamb was nailed upon a cross. The lamb of God. And that was fulfilled. And circumcision as well. No longer um, shedding of blood because Christ shed His blood um, perfectly for us. He was, he was circumcised. He was cut off from God and from neighbor on the cross. Now, I want to make some comparison contrast. Baptism, the supper. Baptism is administered once, right? It's a, it's a, it's a sign uh, that's administered once. The Passover is administered repeatedly. I, I just said it, weekly. Some churches do it quarterly. Some churches do it bi-weekly. Uh, some churches do it like once every, when they remember, <laughs> once every few years. Um, but it's still repeatedly. Okay, Circum baptism is applied, as we talked about last week, to believers, new converts, and their children. The Lord's Supper is, is for believers only. This is a sign of covenant entry, right? You only enter once. That's why it's only applied once, because it's a sign of, of, of entering the covenant community and the promises of God in Christ. This is a sign of covenant renewal. This one, baptism, and by the way, as covenant entry, it's, it represents our, our cleansing of sin, our being justified by God in Christ. Um, and what are those, what, what kind of thing, what do we do in that? And those two things, justification and being washed of our sins, we don't do anything, right? It's totally passive. And interestingly, the sign itself, both, in, both circumcision and bad, it's passive. It's received. We don't do anything. Okay, but by contrast, Passover, the supper is a meal for our, our sanctification, our growing up in Christ. And that is something that we are involved in, that we work to do. And so look, it's active. Like we actually go up and we take the elements and we put them in our mouth. Because our sanctification involves us um, with working with God. Let, let me give you an example on the sanctification thing. Um, I've said this before, but it's worth mentioning again. Uh, actually, you guys were there. 
It was you guys that made, helped make it happen. Um, I got on a wakeboard and actually got up on the water one time. And I tried it before in the past, and it was just like a disaster. Couldn't do it. And the thinking, my thinking was, you know, if I just hold on tight enough and kind of muscle my way through it, then I can do it. And, you know, you find yourself, like, just being drugged along the water, holding the rope, like, <laughs> futile. Um, well, fast forward, like, 15-plus years. You know, I'm older, out of shape, less confident in my own abilities physically. And I'm told, hey, just, just kind of lean back, let the boat do the work, and you ride. And so I did that, and I popped right up. And then I actually, like, stayed up and kind of started moving around. And Okay, so here's the thing. The key in that was what? Letting the boat do the work. Lean into the power and the sufficiency of the boat to keep me up. Now, here's the thing, though. The next day, I was really sore. Actually, the rest of the evening, I was sore and weak. Like, it was work. It was a lot of work. Um, it was toil. Like Paul, so think about sanctification. Paul talks about toiling in the power of the Spirit, right? It's toil. It's work. It's a dying to self. But at the same time, you're leaning into the power of God and the Spirit to, to make the thing bear fruit. But it, it's tiring. It's, that's how sanctification works. But look, here's the point. It's active, right? And the meal reflects that. The meal is something we actually take in and we chew and we ingest and take. Okay, let me make one final point and then we'll do questions. Um, you know, the, the exodus, one of the things that makes sense of all this sacrament stuff is um, tying the, the sacraments to the whole of Scripture, the Old and New Testaments, the whole thing. Um, if you just look at the New Testament to understand, like, baptism or even the Lord's Supper, you're not getting the whole picture. Um, and that's true of our salvation. The, the major picture of our salvation before it actually arrived was the Exodus experience, right? That the people of God, uh, God frees Israel from their enslavement in Egypt. And um, once they're freed, what, what happens to them? They're, the first thing, they're baptized in the Red Sea, right? They're baptized in the Red Sea, Peter says. And then once they come out on the other side of that baptism, then what are they doing? They're walking in the wilderness. They're pilgrims on their way to the promised land. And what is it that sustains them in that wilderness? It's this like mysterious bread from heaven that just floats down. So they're, they're, they, they, they've been initiated into their life in God through baptism. And then they are sustained in their journey through the bread from heaven as they await the, the, the arrival into the promised land. Right? That's, that's like our story, that we have, we've been baptized. This is how it all begins for us. Maybe it begins at age 25. Maybe it begins at eight days old. But that's where, that's where it begins for us. And then as we are pilgrims in this world, longing for the world to come, for Christ's kingdom, we're nourished by, uh, by Christ spiritually and by His Spirit on a regular basis on our way to... Uh, the other side of Jordan, right? The, the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth that Christ will bring about. So that covers uh, the sacraments, but I know there were a lot of questions on baptism. There's probably questions on the Lord's Supper. And if you have questions on baptism too, I'd be happy to tackle those. I mean, it's still kind of the sacraments. So if you have any questions on anything that we've talked about up until this point, this is your, your opportunity to ask. Any questions? <laughs> yes, Dave. Casey, do you, you ever wonder why there's six fighting between 
Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. There's probably a really good answer to it. But I, John Piper, you know, he's, he, he was dealing with that question right there. And he said, you know, it's easy for us to kind of condemn that sort of violence over these issues. He said, but if theirs was an age of brutality, ours is an age of superficiality. In other words, they, they actually really believe this stuff. Um, which is commendable. Um, but the violence that lagged behind that belief, I think, is to be avoided. I mean, you know, Christ, what does he say when, uh, when the, you know, he's, he's about to be taken? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, it's, it's not to say violence is not in the Christian future. And there's a judgment coming, but our call is not to... Our call is to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, um, not states. So, anyway, I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Any other co- questions? Comments? Was we'll take comments. Yeah? Is there a um, view besides transubstantiation for the first 1,600 years, or did that really just start it? It was, uh, it, it, I, it's hard to find where it's talked about early on. It's interesting, though, that the Eastern Church and the Catholic Church both held to basically the same view, and that is that these things become the body and blood of Christ. The Eastern Church said, we don't get it, but it's happening, and they never even tried to explain it. And then beginning really with Aquinas in the you know, 13th century, he said, uh, and he used Aristotelian philosophy to do it, said, this is what's happening. And that's where the transubstantiation language comes out of. Is that so? That really, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of articulation on what's happening in the meal until the 13th century. I think it's the third. It's quite. When, I'm fuzzy on my dates right now. Aquinas, in late medieval period. So, yeah, I don't know if that helps. Any other questions? Comment. Any questions on baptism? General Casey. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think are, are the like we like a lot of this is maybe new. Like what are what are the real things you gotta hold on to just in general as you think about this? Yeah, the big the big one is this, is this right here. Um, that the Lord's Supper, there is heightened supernatural activity happening when we receive the elements, if the spirit so wills it. And this meal is actually a means by which we grow deeper uh, into Jesus, are, are, are unified to him, and also um, our eyes are opened, right? Like in the, our eyes are opened to what he's done for us by the power of the Spirit. That's the big thing. It's not just a remembering, although it is that. It's, it's much more than that. Um, and that's what I would, and so if, you know, the question becomes like, well, at what point does a, does a child go from not taking the table and the elements to doing that? And I would say, because of what I just said, pretty, I mean, as soon as they can profess faith and understand what Jesus did in, you know, the five-year-old appropriate way, then I say, let them come. Because the emphasis is not on the understanding, but on the object of, of your faith, right? If they know they need Jesus, let them come receive Jesus. And their faith will develop over time. Their faith will develop actually over because of their coming to the Lord's table. That's the belief. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to highlight. So hopefully that clarifies it. There's something really unique and supernatural and mysterious is happening at this table. That's the takeaway. Yeah. When you think about kind of fencing the table or whatever you want to call it, relative to a child, how do you think about that? So, because of, okay, 
good, good question. Look at verse 12. If you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verse 27. And this is one of the reasons why we believe that there's something mysterious happening because of what Paul says right here. Verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Um, Oh, and let's continue. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So that by eating of the table in an unworthy manner, you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Well, why is that the case? And what does that mean? Again, don't know exactly, but what that points to is that there's something very unique happening in this meal. That if it were just a remembrance, it probably wouldn't be, you wouldn't be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself if you just did it wrongly. So because of that, because we don't want people eating and drinking judgment upon themselves, we do uh, what's called fencing the table, which is what Jeff just said. Reminding, uh, basically saying that the meal is for those that have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's for professing Christians. This meal, is, it's not a table for those that are not professing Christ. And we would ask that if, if, if you're not professing Christ, that you would, you know, we respectfully ask that you would abstain from the, from the elements. So that's fencing the table. Um, but, but now the question is, well, what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? I think the big question is, uh, do you know your need of Jesus? Are you keenly aware of that? And if you are, then the table is for you. The table is for the hungry, right? Not those that are satisfied in there. And um, so when it comes to a child, um, the question I, I would have is, do they understand their need for Jesus? And in such a way that they can, look, discern the body, that they can understand kind of what they're doing. This is why some churches practice pedo-communion, which is where the actual, like once you're baptized, you receive the element, the elements. But that doesn't, that little four-month-old can't discern the body. So that's why we don't let them do it. So would you, yeah. Did I, yeah you that, that, that's a great answer. Okay. So getting a little bit more practical, would you, when you think about this, yeah, so the, the process would be that um, anyone that comes to the Lord's table is admitted by the session, which is myself and the elders. Um, now, we don't have any elders right now, so that's like that, that needs to be. There's some particulars that need to be worked. In fact, I'm going to talk about that tonight at the session meeting at City Press because they're the ones that kind of have, well, this is so complicated. They will likely have oversight of us, but if they don't, then it'll be some other body. But basically, uh, the leadership admits to the table after a conversation. And the main thing I'm personally looking for, for is, um, does, a, does a child know their need for Jesus? Um, and that would be the question. Yeah. If they could, I mean, that's part of the thing. The bread and the wine is so simple. Like you have to have bread. If you don't, you die. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like, you have to have me. If you don't have me, you're not going to make, you're, you're going to experience my judgment, not my blessings. So, you know, the meal itself is actually really helpful for explaining what it's talking about. It's just so basic. Dave. Oh, yeah, sorry. Well, I mean, it's really just tied to that. When it talks about discerning the body, uh-huh. I've read some, some commentators have said that that has a twofold. Yeah. It's discerning the body of Christ as far as the needs of others in the community, uh, the need for repentance of sin, things like that, mm-hmm. to another brother or sister, as well as discerning the actual body and blood of Christ. Do you think there's anything to that? I... I've not heard that, but I think it makes a lot of sense, especially in relation to the whole issue in Corinth, right? The divisions in the body. And so they've totally lost sight of, they're not discerning the body in that sense. Um, They're not discerning their neighbors, and they're totally neglecting them. Um, So yeah, that's 
that's interesting. I've never, never, I've seen that. Um, which, you know, um, which highlights the, you know, if, if there is a division within the body over something, uh, you know, don't take, don't take the meal until that has been sort of reconciled or worked out in the presence of that person. Yeah. Jeff, did I answer your question fully, or maybe not fully, but at least satisfactorily? Yeah. Right. It's very practical. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> Start using donuts for the bread. That might that might spur things along. <laughs> <laughs> Laura. Um, yeah, so good question. So the question is, for Catholics, there are seven sacraments. Marriage is one of them. Uh, well, the two, baptism, Lord's Supper, there's holy orders, there's last rites, there's... I don't even remember all the others. But uh, Protestants have limited it to two and the criteria for what counts as a sacrament it's not to say obviously Protestants believe in marriage they believe in uh, ordination they believe in uh, all those things but in order for a sacrament to be a sacrament it needed to be instituted by Jesus himself and practiced on a regular uh, in a regulative way in the early church you see that with both the baptism and the Lord's Supper Jesus institutes both of them on the night he was betrayed, Lord's Supper, and in the Great Commission, baptism. And you see in the book of Acts, the early church practicing them on a regular basis. So that's the criteria. And that's why it's just baptism and Lord's Supper for Protestants. Good question. One more question, if anybody has one. Okay. Thank you for being here. Um, we will, we will come back next week, and then we're off for two weeks. Uh, and then we will, March 29th is the next week after that. So um, let, me, let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we, uh, we recognize the difficulty of the journey that we're on, but we thank you that you, you've made it before us, that you... Um, Christ lived and, and walked among us uh, here on earth, and we pray that you would give us his strength, um, his help as we make that journey, and pray that these um, sacraments would be a means by which we are strengthened in faith and reminded of, of your goodness towards us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.